Today's reading is from Genesis 4, 17 through, well, the end of chapter 4, with 5, 1 through 8 for reference. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mehujael, Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the first of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. He was the first of all who played the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be seventy-seven times. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you, David, for reading that. Your pronunciations were like perfect. And all those names, right? That was good. Yes. Give it up. This is the kind of passage we just all maybe heard it read, maybe for the first time that you actually read that passage. Uh, it's the kind of passage for me, most of you probably, you kind of scratch your head, you read it, you kind of breeze right through it. We have our questions about it, maybe, if we're following along with the story from the beginning of the Bible here to chapter 4. In Genesis, you know, we probably go, where did Cain get a wife, right? I know some of you are thinking about that. We'll talk about that later. Or like, did people really live, if you look at chapter 5, 930 years and 912 years and all that? We'll talk a tiny bit about that later as well. Once we think about those questions for a moment and decide, do I have a place to answer those or not, just kind of move on through, right? Like many of the genealogies in the Bible. We wonder, why is this here? I have a lot of other questions and needs and issues and problems in my life. I don't need a genealogy. How is that going to help me? What are we supposed to get out of this? Well, there's a lot. To understand what's here, we need to remember the context. This passage picks up the story after Cain kills his own brother, Abel. At this point, right in the story of Genesis, there are three people in the world, Adam and Eve, the originals, and Cain. So Adam and Eve are in grief, shock, trying to figure out what in the world is going to happen, right, after one of their sons kills the other. And Cain, as we looked at last week, God says, you're going to be a restless wanderer. He refuses to repent and confess. He moves further and further away from God, 
further and further away from God's purposes for humanity. It says in chapter 4, we looked at this last week, he was living in the land of Nod. And Nod in the original language means the place of wandering. So he was living further and further lost. At this point in the Bible's prologue, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, we are wondering, right, if you can enter into the story at this point in time, what will happen to the human race? It's not looking very good. And the answer is given to us in this passage. What will happen to the human race? It will be divided into two. The line of Cain, verses 17 through 24 here, and the line of Seth. Chapter 425, and it goes on, if you look down in the bulletin, chapter 5 continues on with the story of Seth's line and his genealogy. So what we have here, okay, what is this text? What is the point of this text? This text gives us a dividing line between humanity, separating humanity into two groups, two families, two fundamentally different ways to approach and live life that ultimately each of us must choose from. So what I'd like for you to do, and kids, I'm glad you're here in the service, you can draw a line right here in your bulletin between verse 24 and 25, symbolizing this dividing line. And before we get on into this passage, I'd like to ask all of you, uh, kids included, you take a look at this passage in the bulletin, and just based on what we read, maybe it's the first time you've read it, we've got the first part. We've got Team Cain. Look at Team Cain's family here in the bulletin, in the passage, or in your Bibles. And in the second part, it's a bit shorter, but it continues on into chapter 5. We have Team Seth, Team Cain and Team Seth. So, which one do you want to be a part of? Hold on. You think you know the right answer? Like, I think I know what the right answer is, but just a moment before you answer so quickly. We might all feel like, yeah, I know what the right answer is supposed to be, but look at what Team Kane has. Team Kane has the music, the lyre, the guitar, and the flute. That's pretty good. Team Kane has a city life. They built a city. Not sure if Team Seth has a city. They have the herdsmen. That means they have the burgers. You want to eat well. They've got the cows and the sheep and all that, shish kebab, whatever. Team Kane has the technology. They've got the tools. They've got the bronze tools, man. They've got the iron tools. That's Team Kane. And what does Team Seth have? Check it out. What do they have? It doesn't say Team Seth has much, except that they called on the name of the Lord. So maybe you can write down your choice or somehow indicate which team do you want to be on. Let's dig a little deeper into this passage, and at the end, you can come back to your answer to that question with a fuller understanding, I hope, of what it means to answer the question with the choice of Team Cain or Team Seth. Let's look at Team Cain first. Cain's family line. If I were to put a label on his team, if I were to put a label on his line, it would be the strong. And we have a team logo, everybody, for Team Cain. Let's look at that logo. 
That's pretty good right there, right? Who wants to wear that on their team logo? The bulldog with the spiky collar. That's pretty impressive. After we learn of what Cain did and the consequences of his murder, in the earlier part of chapter 4, we wonder, what's going to happen with this guy Cain? That was horrible, what he did. And verse 17 tells us, if we look at this, he rebels against his sentence of living as a restless wanderer, right? God says, you're going to live as a wanderer. He settles down. He gets married. And he builds a city. Seemingly all in rebellion against God, like he's doing this in God's face to rub it in. You think you can give me a sentence to be a restless wanderer? I'm going to build a city, and I'm going to name my city after my son Enoch. Enoch means dedication. He's like, look at this. I dedicate this to my son. Look what I did. Though it's like Cain is saying, I'm living and hiding from the presence of the Lord. He sent me away. I can build a lasting place for me and my family without God. That's a pretty strong flex right there, isn't it? Okay, Cain's wife. We don't know where she comes from. Is, it, is she one of uh, Adam and Eve's children? Uh, from the text, seems like that could be true. Should we allow for the possibility of other humans at this time? Uh, there could be a possibility for that, but we're not going to spend a lot of time pursuing those questions. The story is given to us as Cain has a wife, and we're going to take that at face value. Cain's line, as we look at this, is quite a testament to human strength. Okay, first we see Cain, he's working against God. I'm going to build a city. I'm not going to be a wanderer. He's working against the ground that God said, this ground will be cursed. It's going to be harder for you, Cain. He's like, all right, bring it on. And somehow he establishes himself. It is pretty impressive. And we see the strength of Cain being passed along, right? His line are the first to develop all kinds of human culture. They develop politics at this time, right? Cities. Cities were all about fortification and protection. Cities were about keeping everyone in safe and keeping everyone out, out, relying on human strength for protection against other humans. So that does bring increased safety, but if you think about it, it's all built in fear and in threats and in distrust. This is not God's intention for the human race, to live in fear and keeping one another out. We have the beginning of politics, right? Politics meaning the organization of power. Polis uh, comes from the word city. So we have the beginning of cities and politics. And then we have the beginnings of science, right? Jabal, the first of the nomadic herdsmen, beginning to understand and tame the natural world for human benefit. That's pretty good. Then we have the beginning of the arts. We have Jubal, the first to play the lyre and the flute. So string and wind instruments. We have music and the arts being created here. And then we have technology. Tubalcane, making tools of bronze and iron and humans, taking the raw material of the world and making these tools to make life easier in a broken, cursed world. Politics, science, arts, technology, culture advances. There's a lot of strength in that. And you said that seems okay, right? Those things aren't bad, are they? 
But alongside these developments, what do we also see? As culture advances, so does violence and sin. We see this all culminating in this guy, Lamech. He's the seventh in the line of Cain. Seventh in the Bible's very significance. It means like the fullness or the completeness. He's like the representation of what this way of living will bring about. Here we have Lamech, the seventh son. He has two wives. Clearly not God's intention from the beginning as we learned in Genesis 2. A good gift of marriage, corrupt and misused. And he takes this art of poetry and song. What does he do with it? He makes a song of violence and pride and control. And we could see this. You know, we've got the Bulldog logo and everything. This is like their pride song. You know, it's interesting about this, and it just kind of dawned on me as I was reading it this week, is everyone's alive still. You know, we have these long ages, and it's hard for us to understand, but the story is saying Cain was here for that song. All of his sons were here for the hearing that song, and they're like, yeah. Yeah, Lamech, <laughs> that's our song. If Cain, if God, it, uh, it, Lamech's song says, if God avenges Cain seven times, which God said he would, he would protect Cain, Lamech, and he speaks of himself, he sings of himself in the third person. I mean, just look at this poem. Can you imagine singing a song like this? I, Eric, and he speaks to his wives, Wives of Lamech. <laughs> Wife of Eric. Like, that would be the end for me right there. <laughs> right? He says, if God has seven times vengeance, Lamech has 77 times vengeance. What is up? Fear Lamech and his strength. You think God is to be feared? What about me? What's going on here? This is not saying that all these cultural developments are bad and sinful. All these things, cities, herds and herdsmen, instruments, music, tools, technology, all are spoken of positively in the Bible. All are used actually in the worship of God, the sacrificial system, the temple, so forth. But in Cain's line, we see all aspects of human culture building are tainted by sin taking something that is good and twisting it in pride, not to use it for the glory of God and the good of others, but self-interest and self-advantage. They are all used by people to develop life independent of God. Said another way, to create a way of life based on and trusting in human strength. Right? This is what this line is all about. By gaining power and strength in the arts and the sciences, technology and politics, we will protect. We will define ourselves. We will build our identity. We will make our place in this world without God. What's obviously missing in the line of Cain is any mention of God. These are people made in the image of God with incredible creativity, ability, and strength all given to them by God, all using it, all that strength to build a life independent of God. All right, so Team Cain, anybody want to be on Team Cain? I don't know, man. It sounds somewhat appealing to me, to be honest. If something goes down, 
Lamech is there and he's got your back, right? Work is easier with tools. You enjoy good food, good music. You look at your team's achievements and accomplishments and you think, no one's going to mess with us. All right, let's look at team Seth. The line of Seth, it's a bit shorter here. It continues on in chapter 5, but there's a break. There's a section there in 25 and 26 where it's comparing the line of Seth to the line of Cain. If I were to give this line and this team a name, it would be Team Week. Let's look at the slide. This is their logo. I just see that person is kind of struggling to do that sit-up, you know? Like, they're just struggling to get that half a sit-up going. (laughs) Is that fair to call this Team Week? Why? Uh, Compared to Cain's line that we just read, it's quite a contrast, right? Just read these in contrast. There's no mention of cities and politics and science and arts and technology. There's no song of strength in Seth's line. There's just one descendant mentioned in in chapter 4 at least. His name is Enosh. The names in Scripture, and especially here in the genealogies of Genesis, are significant for their meaning. Seth's name. For Seth, it sounds like the word for granted, given, set in place. Eve is saying, God has given, God has granted by his grace an offspring. I lost Abel. I lost Cain. Cain is lost. God will keep his promise that the offspring of the woman herself will fight evil, sin, and death, and will one day triumph. And God is saying, or Eve is saying, God has provided another offspring. He's going to keep his promise from Genesis 3.15. So Seth's name is significant. But here I'd like to draw our attention to Enosh and his name. And usually in family service, I like to give all of our kids either a Greek or Hebrew word to take home with you for the day. This is yours for the day. Enosh. Everybody say Enosh. Good. It can be translated simply just man. Kind of generically. It is, the word, it is one of the Hebrew words for man, but it's most often used in the context of human mortality and frailty, i.e. weakness. Nahum Sarna, Jewish scholar, says this. It's in the reflection quotes. I think maybe, I don't know if we have the quote here on the slide, but it's in the beginning of the bulletin. He says, it is the consciousness of human frailty symbolized by the name Enosh that heightens man's awareness of utter dependence on God, a situation that intuitively evokes prayer. He's saying the name Enosh here is not just a name. It symbolizes utter dependence and weakness, human frailty. So here we have one line that tries to descend their weakness, or to transcend their weakness, the line of Cain through boasting and violence and pridefully developing new technologies for their own glory and their own good. The other line owns and admits their weakness and from a place of frailty and need calls upon God. What does it mean to call upon someone? We can say at least two things about it when you're saying we call out, we cry out, we call upon someone. There's a sense of awe in that. This someone has greater strength than me. 
a call upon that carries a sense of worship, and it also carries a sense of need. They're crying out. They're calling out from a sense of awe. God is different than us. He is above and beyond us like we began the service saying. He has all strength and we don't. He is the creator and we are the creature. And we need him. He has what I need. I don't have what I need. I need outside help and outside strength. This is all that Team Seth has, according to the text. An admission of their weakness, and they were the first to call upon the name of the Lord out of a sense of that weakness and need. There we have the two lines and the two teams. Uh, one commentator said, speaking to this contrast, he said this, listen, calling upon the name of the Lord as great as all the inventions of civilizations were, this was greater by far. I want to ask you, really? Do you believe this? Calling upon the name of the Lord is a greater invention than technology, whatever technology can bring to us, whatever politics and the arts and the sciences can do. Do I believe this? Will I choose Team Seth? Think about it. What would Enosh, okay? Enosh meets Lamech. If Lamech came to Enosh and says, look at what I've done, the strength of me and my family versus yours. We've got technology, science, herds, arts, music, cities, and military strength. What do you have, Seth? Well, we call upon the name of the Lord. And when faced with the fears we have in our own hearts, the threats that we feel that are around us in the world, when we experience the things that make us feel anxious, when the questions in our minds are, what will my future be like? How do I know that I have security in this world? How will high school go? What about my grades and my friends? What college will I get into? What will it be like? What college will my kids go to? What circumstances uh, of life when they seem like there's storms and there are trials, what, what will get me through those things? When we're afraid about our financial situation, when people mistreat us, what team would you rather be on? I've been talking about this passage thus far as two lines that we, the reader, us, the people, must choose from, right? Which line, Cain or Seth, would you choose? That is the application in, the pas in this passage. That is the challenge here. But there's a higher and more direct meaning. There's a more direct interpretation on the surface here that comes first before we can make our final choice, before this passage is about us and our choice. It's about God's choice. That's what Genesis 4 and 5 are talking about. Which line, which team does God choose? Through which line will God accomplish his purposes, restore blessing, restore life, bring humanity back to what he has intended and designed us all to be? Is it through the strong or is it through the weak? And the answer is clear here. It's the line of Seth. 
that carries on God's purpose and intention for the world. It's there in chapter 5. That's why we included it here in the bulletin. It is in and through the week that God's purpose for his image bearers is accomplished. Look at chapter 5 here. As it transitions from these two lines and continues the line of Seth, it says, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. We looked at this a number of weeks. God's creation intention for his people to bear forth his image with dignity, to be his royal ambassadors throughout the earth and to spread flourishing in his name and, in, and for his glory throughout the earth. Who will carry that on? Adam, when he was 130 years old, that's pretty old, when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, he named him Seth, and the story goes on. It is through Seth that God's purposes for humanity will be accomplished. Friends, this is God's pattern. This is God's way. It's how he always works, through the paradox of strength in weakness. Strength in calling out to him in faith, out of our need, out of our vulnerability. When the odds seem so stacked against us and against his people, Israel versus Egypt, Gideon and his small army versus the Midianites, David versus Goliath, Elijah versus 850 prophets, Daniel versus Nebuchadnezzar, and the list goes on and on. Let's look at one of these lists in Hebrews 11. What more can I say, it says? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. All the heroes, they found strength in weakness. So friends, for us, how do we know? How do we know that the pattern will continue for us, for me, for my life, my anxieties, my fears, my future? How do we know? This world is not an easy place. People are not always nice and kind and easy to deal with or safe to deal with. How can we trust well, as Hebrews goes on to say, the culmination of this passage says, well, if that's not enough to convince you that you can trust that God continues to work in this pattern, fix your eyes on Jesus, in whom we see this pattern most clearly, Jesus, who always chose weakness. He could have chosen fame and power and control. He could have come in vengeance with the full authority and force of his divine strength. He didn't do that. He came as an infant, a baby in a manger. He experienced life as Enosh, frail, mortal, vulnerable, killable. God Almighty, Son of God, came as a servant, a slave of all. And in what seemed like the most foolish and the most weak 
choice and decision he could ever make if he were going to make a difference in this world, to be willingly crucified, have his body broken and blood shed, treated as a criminal. There's nothing more weak, especially in that time, than to be crucified. And there we find the world's greatest power. Which team, the strong or the weak, does God choose? We already read this from 1 Corinthians. I'll read it again. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Do you know how the Christian church was born? When the Apostle Peter gave the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's a fantastic sermon. At the heart of that sermon, when people were wondering, what's, what do I do? What's, how, do I, how do I get on board with what's happening, what God is doing in the world? What he's done through this crucified one who has risen in power. Peter said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when Peter said that, and people said, okay, I will call on the name of the Lord in weakness. The Christian church was born. And ever since that day, what has been the strength of the church of Jesus Christ what has been way stronger than the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the entire, entire United States of America, the Roman Empire, and all other movements, powers, and cultures of the world? You know, the church at its worst can and has been sometimes allied with the strong, forgetting strength and weakness. But always, it is God who chooses the weak. You don't know about them. You don't know their names. We don't know, I don't know their names. We don't hear about them because they are the meek. They are the humble. They are simply calling on the name of the Lord in weakness and from there finding true strength to bring glory and honor to God. To use what God has given them to serve others for their good. So friends, to close, let me ask you. How are you maybe resisting this morning, your weakness, your vulnerability, and your need. How are you choosing Team Strong? If the song of your heart is really all about you, you're in a dangerous place. Pray the Lord would break you of your pride and humble you, and today you might call upon his name. If you are in a place where you feel like, I can't deny my weakness, I feel it. I'm in a place of need and vulnerability. What are you doing with your weakness and vulnerability and need? Join Team Week. Call upon 
the name of the Lord, and the Lord Jesus will meet you with his strength. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging text for us because in our hearts we gravitate towards our own strength. We want to have self-sufficiency. We want to be independent. We want to be able to say we have enough to do it and that we're strong enough in and of ourselves to make it through. We cling to things that we feel justify us in our own eyes and before the eyes of others that prove that we're a step above, that we're a cut above. And we're tempted to trust in things that offer us the promise of living life apart from you, independent of you. And I pray that you would break us of that this morning and help us to come to you in renewed faith, bringing with you our weakness, our vulnerability, and our need, and with renewed faith and trust calling upon your name. We know that you meet all those who come to you with a broken and contrite heart, with abundant mercy and compassion, and with your invincible strength and power. And so we're asking that you would renew us, fill us with that strength, meet us in our weakness, that you might be honored and glorified, that the song of our hearts might be for your honor and glory, and that you would use everything you give to us that we might bring good to others and that we might meet others humbly in their weakness, pointing them to you in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.